0: At 13 years old, Xavier mcelrath Bay was sentenced to 25 years in prison for a gang-related murder.
1: What I will never forget is the juvenile judge who had transferred me to the adult system. I remember him using the word incorrigible when he described me. It was a word that I didn't understand.
0: Xavier didn't understand what it meant to be tried as an adult back in 1989 but after serving 13 years of a sentence, his mission is now to work on behalf of the victim of his case and all the incarcerated youth handed extreme sentences. Now at age 45, he's the co-executive director of the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, a DC-based organization fighting in courtrooms, legislatures, and prisons across the US. He tells his story, hoping it will change people's minds and our justice system. Welcome back to the One Book, One Northwestern podcast. I'm Camille Williams, and we're exploring issues related to Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson. In the book, Stevenson details his early work as a criminal defense lawyer in Alabama, where he worked to advocate for those mistreated by the judicial system. He's since become the most influential criminal justice reform advocate in the U.S. In today's episode, we're talking about someone walking in Stevenson's footsteps, Xavier mcelrath Bay. He was honored on October 28th as the inaugural speaker for the one-book series on Fearless Advocates You Should Know.
1: We actually reached out to Ryan himself to say who would he nominate for this series, and not surprisingly Xavier was also at the top of his list.
0: Shopa Lakshmi Mahadev has worked with Xavier as a professor at the Children and Family Justice Center at Northwestern and as a project director at the Illinois Fair Sentencing of Youth. She's also a close friend to Xavier. She shared the story of how she first met him.
1: In, I think it was 2012, there was a New York Times article talking about some of the work of Professor Linda Teplin at Northwestern, and in particular, a longitudinal juvenile study that she had conducted. But I was focused as I read that article on Xavier because his story was part of the article, and I could not believe that there was someone who had gone through this type of experience who was now outside of prison walls, and now doing this work in the community and doing research, and that I didn't know him. He was literally in our
0: backyard at Northwestern. Xavier helped interview over 800 formerly incarcerated youth for the now 20-year study to track their mental health needs and outcomes.
1: Being at Northwestern University for over five years, I just, you know, I came and learned so much about people who were just like me. And we were able to follow them year after year. We got to know them quite well. In fact. Good amount of subjects who just refused to do interviews with anyone else except for me, and, uh, and I prided myself in being a, a part of their lives in that way. And a big part of that reason really is for me is because, you know, I was, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of them.
0: You'll be hearing Xavier's story that he shared in the one book Q&A with Chopa. We start in Back of the Yards, Chicago, in an abusive and unstable household.
1: My first encounter with, with law or with police officers, in fact, happened when I was six years old. I remember the police banging on our doors, trying to get in. My mother crying hysterically, saying that my stepfather wasn't there. In fact, they were looking for him, and he was hiding not far from where we were standing. And I just witnessed it all, feeling helpless and hopeless, not knowing what was happening, but definitely understanding um, a, a while down the road that the reason why he was being arrested is because he was abusing us. When they finally arrested him, I remember them escorting me, my brother and my two sisters, down the flight of steps into the back of a squad car. And I remember witnessing my mother fighting the police, trying to stop them from taking us away, but she couldn't stop them. And that was my introduction uh, to what would be, in my mind, really just an oppressive system that didn't understand me, didn't have a care in the world for me and my family and others, similarly situated.
0: Xavier and his siblings experienced more abuse under the foster care system. He says one foster mother was particularly cruel and beat him and his siblings often.
1: Going to school was a luxury. We didn't have any sorts of entertainment, no television, no radio, no toys. In fact, I remember one very um, unfortunate day in which my brother and I took the construction paper from our school and we were making our own toys and she came in and saw the mess. She tore up our our toy slide and literally just subjected us to even harsher experiences in response to us just trying to be children.
0: After two and a half years, his mother regained custody of Xavier, but his new stepfather subjected him to more abuse. This cycle of violence led Xavier to run away and become involved with a gang by age 11. By 13, he'd racked up 19 arrests and seven convictions. This was also the age where he was sentenced for his most serious crime, first degree murder.
1: I was guilty, but I was also deeply remorseful. I was a kid who, although I did not physically kill Pedro, uh, the victim of my case, I was responsible, and I instantly felt remorseful for those actions.
0: Because it was a serious offense, the court employed a designation that allows children to be treated like adults in court, such as being shackled and held in solitary confinement before sentencing.
1: There was a small moment of recognition that I was a child, interestingly, but it came in the most detrimental way, a very painful way. The state's attorney said at my sentencing hearing, he said the defendant has an extensive juvenile arrest record indicative of a violent nature and under no circumstances should be considered for early release. Obviously, I had no adult offenses. They used my juvenile arrest rec- record in an adult setting to hold me accused accountable.
0: At first, the state attorney offered a plea deal for Xavier, 40 years in prison. Xavier says he was lucky to have a great public defender. She conferenced privately with the prosecutor to decrease his sentence while Xavier waited outside in an empty holding cell.
1: I was so desperate to hear. What they were saying but I couldn't I couldn't hear a word because uh, there was a light blaring above my head and if you've ever, you ever been in Cook County those bullpens are old and the lights just go bzzz. and I remember that it just just permeated my whole senses I was so anxious pacing back and forth I was sweating I was scared and I remember Sheila coming back to the bullpen and she put her hands on the bar and she looked at me and she was crying and I didn't know why she was crying she said, Xavier, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm like, why are you sorry? What happened? She said, look, you know, I tried my best, and they they said the, the lowest goal is 25 years. In my mind as a kid, I'm like, okay, 40 years? 25 years. i are like, what are you crying about? But she was crying also because she understood a few things. She understood first and foremost that I was never going to be able to step foot into a high school. When I got arrested, I was 13. I was still in seventh grade. I didn't know how to drive. I've never been in a relationship. I never experienced many of the milestones that her son, who was the same age as me at the time, was experiencing. And it really broke her heart.
0: The next few years were very difficult for Xavier. He entered Illinois Youth Center, Juliet, a maximum security prison for boys that closed in 2013. Still involved with his gang, Xavier got into a lot of fights, but he also earned his GED. On his 17th birthday, it was time for the judge to decide whether he would be transferred to an adult prison or stay at IYC Joliet. His attorney argued he should stay in the juvenile system while he was still a
1: child. And so she said, your honor, Xavier has a GED and he he wants to pursue college courses at the youth facility at IYC Joliet. And the judge said, you know, uh, do we have that GED with us? But she said, no, your honor, I can get that. The judge asked for a continuance.
0: But while the judge granted a continuance, Xavier spent a month in the Cook County Jail with adults. I
1: had witnessed the stabbing. I had seen various fights. Almost single-handedly stopped the riot. I don't know how that happened, (laughs) uh, but I was someone who just wanted to be in a peaceful environment. It wasn't happening.
0: The judge decided to transfer him to Pontiac Correctional Center, a maximum security prison in terrible condition. Things got worse for Xavier there. One day, there was a riot in the yard. He saw an officer choking his friend, and he assaulted the officer. For that, He earned a year in solitary confinement, a year of demoted privileges, and a year of lost time. This meant that while he had already been in adult prison for almost a year, another year would be added to his sentence. He would leave solitary confinement no closer to a release date. He describes what it was like in the hole at age 17.
1: It is a very cruel and barbaric way to treat a human being, let alone a child. It was a very painful, excruciating thought and, and experience to have to wake up every day to nothing. And, and, and my time to be so warped that my survival was based upon my skills and ability to know how to portion and ration out my meals to predict the, the, the hours in which I'll be most hungry.
0: In Savior's physical and spiritual struggle, he prayed for hope, and it ended up coming from a man on death row.
1: Every week we would have one or two days out in the yard. We would literally be feet away from death row. What, what I came to discover is that one individual was playing basketball all by himself, over and over whenever I'll be out there. Turns out this individual was on death row. And it was interesting, he was, he was clean cut. I didn't understand it. <laughs> he was clean cut, he carried himself as if he had some confidence about himself. I questioned myself, you know, if, if, if he has the strength to wake up every day and put his shoes on, if he has the strength to wake up every day to brush his teeth, brush his hair, to have some hope, to wait for the court hearings to play out, to maybe write a letter to his family member to give love. I said Xavier, if he can do that, why can't you do
0: that? That moment, Xavier decided to leave his gang and he wrote them a letter. But before he went out to the yard and faced them, he took a photo album cover, punched holes out the corners, looped strings through, tied them around his back to secure the cover over his chest beneath his shirt. He wanted to protect his heart in case they stabbed him. But when his gang members encircled him out on the yard, something else happened. An older man pulled him away and affirmed his decision to leave. He said,
1: You know what, I wish I had made the same decision when I was younger. And I'm going to hold you to that. He said, number one, take your ass to school. Number two, don't ever get caught up in no nonsense with no other gangs, because we don't want to have to come and save you. And number three, don't ever represent this gang ever again. And with that, he gave me the green light to live my life.
0: While Xavier was incarcerated the next eight years, he kept that promise and earned his associate and bachelor degrees. In the end, he was released at age 26, serving half of his time. Though his transition from incarcerated young man to restorative justice practitioner was rocky, it's an even more inspiring story. When Xavier left prison in 2002, he had a bachelor's degree, but nowhere to go. After spending his first weeks out in a homeless shelter, he eventually went to stay with his mother. But it was still a toxic environment with substance abuse, so he needed to find a good job to be independent. Starbucks ended up being the solution.
1: To an outreach worker at at, at the YMCA, where I was volunteering with kids, he said, you want to work at Starbucks? I'm like, Starbucks? And I'm like, I'm not going to waste my time, but I know that this opportunity and it's not gonna be, you know, manifest in anything meaningful. He said, give it a try. I know Monica, Monica's a store manager. Maybe she'll give you a chance. It sounded as if she was really like, convinced that I was for the job, but I had to stop her in the tracks. And I expressed to her that I was convicted of murder when I was 13. I explained to her that I've been out for some time that I earned my education while I was in prison. I wanted to live a normal life. And then I remember her stopping me mid-sentence saying, look, Xavier, I'm not gonna judge you based upon who you were back then. I'm gonna judge you based upon who you are today what you aspire to be. If you imagine I got emotional and next thing you know, the following week I was I had a Starbucks apron on and drinking espresso special shots. But I had all kind of energy.
0: He took the job while he worked toward his master's degree in counseling at Roosevelt University. He then dedicated himself as a Juvenile Justice Court Diversion Program Coordinator, a gang intervention specialist, and an outreach worker at Ceasefire. In 2008, Linda Teplin hired him to work on the longitudinal study at the Children and Family Justice Law Center. Soon, the national leaders of the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth heard about Xavier's work, and they invited him to a transformative trip in D.C.
1: When I arrived there, I met a community of people, um, litigators, advocates, directly impacted folks just like me, who had served time, uh, those who were fighting for their loved ones still behind bars. And interestingly, those who were, who were survivors of violence, who had lost levels of youth violence in particular, but also still believed in second chances. and. And being a part of that community, it dawned on me, like, holy cow, like, this is my family here
0: though he didn't know he would work there. In 2014, he officially joined as the Youth Justice Advocate. Immediately, he co-founded the Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network, the first national network to bring together people who've faced extreme sentences. Soon, he and the network were already working with litigators and legislators on his first big initiative to end life without parole for children in Nevada. When
1: I arrived there, um, I saw many folks who didn't look like me, and they were all dressed very nice, and they they walked around with confidence. And we I knew that the lives of the kids in Nevada were in the hands of these individuals. I was in, I was very intimidated. Our then policy director James Dole convinced me that I was the most important person in the room. Now he convinced me that my story, what I had to share, made me more of an expert than they were. And I'm like, man, they got law degrees. Like, come on, <laughs> like I'm not I'm no expert, you know. And he's like. Xavier, trust me. You can learn. You can learn so much, but they can learn much more.
0: He was also instrumental in ending juvenile life without parole in Utah, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Arkansas. Xavier says the organization is confident as it prepares to continue fighting in Illinois and other states.
1: And though I recognize that there's some very looming loom gloom in the current moment in terms of our uh, Supreme Court is now looking, um, we are still laser focused, determined. We are working currently in Ohio. We're looking at Oklahoma, uh, we're gearing up for Maryland.
0: The campaign has over 130 formerly incarcerated or directly impacted people involved. Xavier says it's essential to let those people take the lead and to stay connected to people that the system left behind in prison.
1: The, the recognition I think should always land on the human beings. There are there are literally advocates in there, people in there who would talk us on the table because they know the laws and they, and they literally like not just for themselves, but for, for many others. I just wish that many would just take a step behind those walls to know the people there. That proximity, most definitely, much of what Brian Stevenson talks about, will be very transformative. We now have eight individuals on staff who are impacted by the system in one way or another. We have uh, four board members who are, who are once impacted by the system in one way or another, and we're continuing to grow and evolve in that way.
0: Above all, Xavier is hopeful for the future of incarcerated youth, and says that our hope can transform the world.
1: At the moment we begin to think positively about ourselves and the world, and we believe in each other as human beings, and, and despite the naysaying, we have the, the strong confidence that it's a matter of sharing our lives with one another, and being human and caring and loving towards one another. If we come to recognize those important things, the world would be transformed.
0: To learn more about the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth, you can visit cfsy.org. You can also learn more about Xavier's extensive advocacy and story at nochildisbornbad.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Camille Williams. Thanks to Dr. Ava Thompson-Greenwell for advising on this episode. To check for more podcasts and to view the One Book calendar, visit northwestern.edu slash onebook.